This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. It's the Mayor's Town Hall, and Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is with us here in studio. And yes, we will open up the lines at 905-645-3221, star 9900, for your questions, your comments, for uh, city politics, what's going on in our fair city. And uh, you, the mayor will be here to respond to them. You can reach us by phone at 645-3221, star 9900. Email bkelly at 900chml.com. And, of course, on Twitter at CHML Bill Kelly. You want to talk about Abilene Falls? You want to talk about traffic safety? Uh, you want to talk about, well, a number of different things that we're going to bring up. And if you want to get into the uh, the queue right now on the phones, call right now. We'll get to your calls in just a couple of minutes. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. How are you doing today? I am uh, great, Bill. Uh, great. City Council, uh, just to, to bring people up to speed on this, uh, during the summer months, that being July and August, uh, usually only have two general meetings, uh, one in July, one in August, which usually means... Uh, and they are action-packed. And, and the, the rationale for that, by the way, is not so much so councillors can get away, although some of them will scoot away for a few days. But city staff are entitled to holidays, too. So right. the workload, uh, the, the stuff that needs to get done usually through the rest of the year, things slack off a little bit in the summer. But it was a it was pretty busy uh, agenda that you had yesterday. Uh, it was, and, and a busy agenda for the rest of the week, in fact. So all of our uh, standing committees are meeting, and uh, and we'll wrap that up on Friday with uh, a full council meeting. So rather than waiting till the alternate week, uh, we're doing everything in this one week to try and, you know, free up space and time for folks in vacations, as you point out. So it's pretty, uh, pretty, actually pretty intense week this week, uh, pretty busy. Uh, and then, uh, you know, it'll be a little lighter for most people, uh, you know, a little later on the, in the month. Let's, let's talk about some of the stuff that came up here yesterday. Some of this, of course, are things that you and I have had discussions about in the past, mm-hmm. uh, but council still is, is crafting, I guess, positions on this. Uh, and one of those, of course, is the Stelco lens. Now, since you and I talked last, uh, I, I guess the latest update on that is the fact that uh, Bedrock has been given the keys, essentially, so it's, it's their property now. Have you had a meeting? Uh, have you had a chance to talk with the, the new folks, the new owners? Yeah, we've met uh, on several occasions, in fact, and there's you know been an ongoing dialogue that uh, you know they're 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 now the leasees of that uh, that yeah. property, and uh, they're going to be an operator here. And I'm uh, I actually have been quite impressed with uh, their approach on. Both the uh, the Hamilton Stelco and the Nanico side, and their you know their intent is to uh, continue operating this facility for predominantly iron ore, and uh, I think that's a positive step for the city. And then, you know, we talk about uh, what happens to the uh, the, the remaining lands that uh, is going to be part of Lenco that uh, the province is setting out, and uh, ongoing discussions are happening between ourselves, the Port Authority, and the province of Ontario in terms of how we can. Uh, have that uh, greater amount of influence over a long-term uh, plan to re- retool and reutilize those lands into employment opportunities. So. Well, I talked with Ian Hamilton from the port, uh, I guess at the Economic Summit a week or so ago, right. at uh, the RBG, um, and I, I like Ian. He's a very candid guy. He's a very capable guy, very great manager. I'm really pleased that we've got him running the show there at the Port Authority. But uh, he didn't mince any words. He says, yeah, we're interested. Uh, you know, none of this hedging, well, you know, if somebody calls it. No, 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 no. He, he says, we can do something there. And we can have a collaboration with the city right now uh, to try to make this work. And, and I think that's very much along the same lines as you've been talking about for the last few months. Right. That you, you only got one chance to get this, and you want to make sure you get it done right. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, and the port, I think, could be a very uh, critical partner. And I think we're going to have those discussions to see what a partnership looks like so that we can get to, uh, you know, not competing on the, on these lands, but working collaboratively and together to, uh, to maximize the value for all parties. And, you know, the port is a player in that space. Uh, you know, whether we like it or not, I, I happen to like it. I think there's enormous value in what's, port. What's uh, not to like? 
Well, I, people, you know, you know, you know the old argument on you know the, the reclaimed lands and the industry that's been there, and uh, could we turn that back into you know that that marsh that uh, was uh, that happened at the turn of the century or some other kind of use? And I think that's an impossible dream. And uh, and and the other side of the coin is uh, the employment opportunities that exist that uh, I think are real and and are important for our city. So. You know, the, the industries that are coming today or the, you know, the advanced manufacturing or the uses that are coming today are clean uses. This, this is not, uh, you know, putting an industry in place that uh, is at the turn of the century without inv- any environmental controls or emission controls or any of those things that now are in place. So the, the environment that, uh, that we're trying to protect is actually in, in much better shape today than it was, uh, you know, 100 years ago, even 50 years or even 20 years ago. And, uh, and the new industries that are coming are mindful of that and uh, don't get approvals unless they're, uh, they're adhering to pretty strict environmental laws. So I see employment opportunity. I see a, a partnership opportunity with the Port Authority and potentially other private sector uh, partners. I mean, it's going to require dollars. And, uh, you know, I'm sure the city is not, uh, you know, gifted with, uh, you know, deep, deep, deep pockets to be able to do this. But we have certainly the resources, the planning resources, the, the staff, and the desire to have a greater amount of influence on how these lands are utilized. And we're going to try and exercise that as best we can. Isn't there a plan in place? I mean, going back way back to my time on council, that's some time ago now, uh, there was almost a designation that the West Harbor was going to be used for recreational facilities. Uh, the middle, Actually, that, it's been revised a little bit with Pier 8 and, and Pier 7 and 8 now with some of the stuff. But the east end of the harbor was traditionally looked at as employment opportunities. Right. Uh, and, and deviation from that plan, I guess you have to ask yourself, is there a good reason? And, and you're right. I mean, historically, Hamilton did it the, the wrong way for many, many years. I mean, the whole harbor was polluted. It was a cesspool. Right. You know, we have those beautiful parklands in the West Harbor right now. Uh, not too many Hamiltonians may remember that that used to be a lot of deluxe property. It was terrible. It was a terrible pollution there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of crap that was in the ground, in the water, and everything else. That's been reclaimed, and it's wonderful. But you're not generating any revenue from that, and cities need to generate tax dollars, and they need to have job creation lands. And that's for how many years now people have been saying, well, stop building way out there in the, you know, in the industrial parks and start working down there. Well, now you got a chance to do it. And some of those same people that were saying that are now saying, oh, well, yeah, but not there. Well, then where? Well, and, and, and there is the imminent opportunity. So we are short on employment lands. Uh, that's been an issue with the city for quite some time. That's why we put an awful lot of effort into, uh, you know, expanding in the kind of airport employment growth district. Uh, the rationale there was that we needed employment lands. Uh, no sense chasing businesses to come here when we don't have a place to put them. Uh, and so we, we have that in reserve, and that's certainly a longer-term arrangement. But uh, the imminent opportunity is actually the, the, the lands that are going to be surplus to the needs of bedrock uh, uh, coming out of the, uh, the, the bankruptcy proceeding. You know, that's, uh, that's almost 500 acres of land that uh, can be turned into useful job-creating uh, employment opportunities. So we, we need to seize upon that. We need to do it environmentally correct. Uh, we want to make sure that these businesses are clean, but also provide maximum amount of employment that fits into the long-term strategic direction uh, of the city. And you know what? We've been we've been growing our agribusiness, and and the port has been growing along with us in terms of that uh, that those opportunities. Uh, you can grow all the crops in the world, but if you can't move them, then uh, you're you're not really doing doing that industry a great service. So it's actually happening in partnership with the port, and we can continue to look at those kinds of partnerships to grow not only the opportunities for the port, but the opportunities for employment for the city. During those discussions you've had with Bedrock, and now, now I have not met with those officials. I know they were at the Economic Summit, but they, mm-hmm. uh, they showed up a little later uh, from when we were broadcasting from there. But uh, I talked with uh, 
with uh, Kenan Loomis and some of the other folks that were involved in that, of course, during the summit itself. And they, they're, they're actually pretty excited about some of the things they're hearing from Bedrock right now. This is not, uh, as some people had feared, a situation where these guys are just going to sit on this and then hopefully sell this thing for a profit later on. It looks like they want to invest some significant dollars into this. Yeah, and they and they see value in the in the opportunity, and so the the worry was that uh, you know this is just some hedge fund that's going to uh, you know flip the property, uh, you know, uh, turn it into a scrap, and uh, you know piece it off and uh, and be gone. And uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. Now, you know, we can take them at their word in terms of what their intention is. Uh, I have seen nothing that uh, suggests that they're a, they're a hedge fund operator that's prepared to piece this off. Uh, they're uh, they're actually looking at this as an operation that they want to manage and operate over a longer long term. That's the messaging we get from them. That's the commitments they've made to the province of Ontario, and uh, that's the basis on which they're uh, they're they're actually been given the keys to continue to operate this facility. Uh, they don't own the land, but they do own the uh, the, the the rights to to operate there. And obviously, they have uh, Nanakook, which is a pretty pretty decent steel making operation so they're, uh, they're the, the partnership there seems to be working very nicely uh, I know Arsenal de Fasco is interested in iron ore and uh, that's going to be produced uh, right across the street at the, at the bedrock facility so there are synergies there that uh, that could you know serve us well over the long term I'm not an expert in the steel industry but what I see and what I've heard and what I know at this point is that they're they're in for the long term and uh, and they're going to provide employment and continue to work towards providing uh, benefit to the pensioners, and uh, and to uh, to offset the cost of their benefits. And that's uh, certainly one of the missions that the province set out as a, a goal for them to achieve. I mean, I've heard both sides of this. I've heard from some people that are still not happy with the the settlement the way it is, and with Bedrock moving in there. But I guess to put this in context, it could have been worse. It could have been a lot worse. I mean, they could have just locked the doors here and and. And moved out, and uh, there could have been no sale at all, and the city would have been left holding the bag and wondering what's going to happen with the land and and, and possible employment opportunities. Yeah, I mean, this is making the best out of a, you know a difficult scenario, quite frankly. I mean, this this has been uh, you know a long journey since the days of uh, Stelco, uh, you know, falling apart and g- going into bank bankruptcy in the first place. And you know, I understand the skepticism, and uh, you know what, uh, everyone should have a a skeptical look at what's happening here. But at the same time, I think there's uh, there's reason for optimism. Optimism here, and I think you're quite right. I mean, uh, you know, they could have shuttered the place and closed it down and uh, sold it all off for scrap, and we'd be sitting there with vacant property that needed to be remediated. Uh, right now, we're uh, you know we're looking at 500 acres that need remediation of some sort to be able to repurpose those lands, and uh, that's a challenge enough. And to have you know 500 or or more. Uh, folks employed there is, is not uh, not something to sneeze at and it's not something to throw away and no one wants to abandon the pensioners and the, and the benefits that they're getting and all of that could have happened if uh, this bankruptcy proceeding hadn't landed well speaking of waterfront uh, and we are going to go to your calls by the way in just a couple of minutes 905-645-3221 start 9900 your questions uh, your calls for hamilton mayor fred eisenberger in just a couple of minutes here on the bill kelly show uh, let's talk about Pier 7 and Pier 8 and a, uh, a certain restaurant uh, that is sitting there. Now, you know, we've tried to, to get some details about this, and I, every response we get from the city as well, everybody's lawyering up right now. Uh, the bottom line here is, is uh, I guess the lease is not being renewed, I, and there's some concern here. We've tried to reach out to the owners of Sarkoa to find out exactly what's going on here and what's going on. We've read the notices that were posted on the on the front doors of this place. Uh, is, is in your mind is that business done? Do you want them down there? What's going on? 
Well, I mean, as you know, Bill, uh, the, the Waterfront Trust is managing this process, so uh, the city is kind of peripheral to this, but obviously we're engaged at, uh, at many different levels. Uh, I'm not going to say too much about this. Uh, you know, obviously there's legal proceedings happening here. Uh, you know, but what what we we all know is that uh, this, this operation has been in arrears uh, to the Waterfront Trust for quite some time. Uh, they've been trying to work they, through. They those. say no, but that's another one of the contentious points. Well, I mean, uh, you know what? Well, that you know, that's why people go to court to settle these, these issues out. Uh, you know, I, I mean, the bottom line is that there is money owing, uh, as as I understand it, uh, and these are not small amounts. And uh, at a given point in time, you want, if you have a leasee that isn't paying or paying what they should be paying, then uh, you have to either take action or you're liable to forgive all of that uh, that indebtedness and that's certainly not something that the uh, waterfront trust is uh, is open to do so they made a pretty tough call there's been a you know we we've been back and forthing on this for the better part of a year uh, in terms of trying to find solutions uh with both the operators and uh, and the waterfront trust and uh, we've facilitated many meetings and uh, we've tried very very hard to try and come up with something that uh, could work for everyone either with them or with some other party that might come in and help uh, and haven't been successful. So uh, that those efforts will continue. Uh, we, you know, this is the this is the premier location in the city of Hamilton for a, either a restaurant or whatever use might come there. Uh, right at the apex of our beautiful waterfront, uh, it is a very sad situation that we, that we can't continue on uh, the way that uh, it has been going. And uh, you know what? Uh, you know, there's issues on both sides as always. But I would say that uh, you know, we, at some point. Uh, our hope is that we get a viable use there that uh, can can uh, operate there with uh, without any of the baggage that uh, has currently existed, and uh, certainly an opportunity to, to let them have some live music outside that uh, we put forward not too long ago that that's been objected to is now going to the OMB. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Hamilton is supposed to be music city. Are we ever going to have, have patios that can actually have music on them? Well, I sure I hope had so. the pleasure of uh, visiting our, our daughter up in Barrie a little while ago, and they have a lovely. A uh, series of restaurants not down near their waterfront down there, and and wow, outdoor music. What are, what are, uh, Burlington's outdoor music? Hamilton, yeah. not so much. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of gone the way of the tobogganing issue. You know, kind of an overreaction to you know some some you know past problems that. Uh, no, no one wants to revisit necessarily, but uh, you know we need to free this uh, this city up to uh, you know some live entertainment on outdoor spaces, and uh, we we attempted to do that through a through a policy change, and unfortunately that that's been challenged, and so this year we won't be able to put that into effect. But I hope we're successful at the OMB, and then you know places like Sarco and other places would have limited but uh, but still opportunities to provide outdoor entertainment. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, The other topic that seems to be garnering an awful lot of feedback, of course, is Albion Falls. Go figure. Uh, We had another incident, of course, this past weekend where somebody was injured. We're told it was uh, climbing a fence, one of the fences that the city had erected uh, to try to keep people away from one of the more dangerous areas. But uh, what comes next? I mean, you know, this this is not a frivolous story. Uh, this is not just people hopping a fence to try to get into a, 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 a you know a tourist attraction. I mean, people have died here. Two people died, one last year and, of course, one just a couple of weeks ago. Numerous rescues have been performed over the last year at Albion Falls. Uh, there have been more people injured, obviously the one with the injured leg uh, this past weekend. So what is the city doing to try to mitigate the impacts here and the negative impacts about what's happening? Well, Dan McKinnon is the uh, the manager of public works for the city of Hamilton. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on that. Hi, Dan. How are you doing this morning? 
Good, Bill. How are you? Good. Uh, the good news is we are the city of waterfalls, and people from all over the city and all over the world, I guess, want to come and see this. Uh, I guess the bad news is what do you do with the crowds, and how do you try to control them? Well, it's uh, it's a challenge for us. I, I think the escarpment presents a lot of uh, good things for us and a lot of challenges. And uh, I guess the fundamental message we want to get out to people is if there's a fence there, please respect the fact that it's there for a reason. And uh, while we want people to enjoy an active lifestyle and, and get out on the trails and, and all the wonderful natural features that Hamilton has to offer, is just just really use common sense and be very cautious around these areas. And it's it's a pretty significant fall from the top of the bottom to the bottom of the escarpment. So people just have to be really careful. But are they being careful and are they obeying the signs that are already there? Absolutely not. Uh, you know, we're putting up uh, in, in areas where we're starting to see trends of people making decisions that aren't in their best interest. We're you know, we're putting up snow fence to try to keep them out while we while we work on uh, longer term strategies. But uh, I think what occurred over at uh, Albion Falls there in the in the last few days is an example of where people, you know, they're really not showing good judgment. Uh, we want them to to get out and enjoy these areas of the city. But if we've got fences and signs up, we're putting them there for a reason, and we and we need people to use better judgment. Let me ask you about about the history on this. And and for those of us that grew up in this city, Dan, as I was just saying to the mayor a little while ago. I mean, at one point when we were kids, uh, or even maybe even beyond that, uh, all of us have done hikes up and down the escarpment many times, uh, and and over to the waterfalls. I mean, it used to be a uh, you know the the Good Friday hike was a tradition here for I don't know how many generations where people would all go, and we'd hang up around Albion Falls or or the Devil's Punch Bowl or Webster's or any number of the other great waterfalls that we have here in the area. Uh, I don't remember hearing a whole lot of stories about people doing silly things and putting themselves in precarious positions. Is this a relatively new phenomena? Uh, it feels like it is. Um, I, I don't know if, uh, you know, I think it was uh, getting back to that common sense thing. I, as a kid, I did the same thing. I was in uh, the Red Hill Creek and yeah. I went up to the base of the uh, the Albion Falls, and then I've been at the top. I think I just had a, a you know a pretty healthy fear of, of climbing up it and uh <laughs> I don't know. For some reason, it seems uh, recently people don't seem to have that same fear, and I'm, I'm not sure what's behind it. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, and again, you know, when you're standing at the top and you look and see how far down it is, I mean, you know, common sense would tell you, okay, let's not get too close to the edge. And and I've had people that have said, well, you know, this is the age of the selfie, and, you know, everybody's got their, their phones and their cameras in there, and it's different now. Uh, th- that's no excuse for, for blatantly, I guess, putting yourselves in a precarious position, which is what seems to be happening right now. Uh, but even then, in those days, I mean, I don't remember seeing a whole lot of signage. We used to spend a lot of time at Webster's Falls, too, out in the Dundas area, uh, around Greensville there, and uh, we walk right down to the bottom of the falls. There was a path down there, not even a staircase at that time. Uh, but again, people seem to, to be judicious in how they did these sorts of things. What's going on? What are you hearing from, from your staff and, and from uh, emergency staff that are responding to this about what's happening? Are, are people, are they venturing off the paths that are already there? Are they, are they, cause I mean, I've seen some pictures of, of people that are actually right out on the, on the edge of the cliff there. And, and that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I didn't see a whole lot of that going on in past years. No, I think I think your point about the cell phones is a, is a, is an important one. I think people uh, so often now are chronicling uh, everything that they do all day long, and uh, certainly putting themselves in situations that are, are dangerous. Sometimes that's part of the motivation, is so that they've got some uh, um, some record of them doing something that they can put on their Facebook and and and, and that kind of thing. And I, so I, I think that is uh, a more kind of uh, important modern phenomenon that's happening. I think cell phones are, get, are kind of driving people to do things that they might not have done before. Um, 
you know, I think, you know, in public works, we, we do a, a lot of things around infrastructure. We have to understand infrastructure. But one of the things that we also have to understand is human behavior and whether it's, you know, our initiatives around uh, complete streets and, and, you know, trying to trying to make our roads safer and more pedestrian friendly and, and our as, as more and more we build uh, trails and we try to encourage people to get out and have those healthy, active lifestyles, uh, you know, I guess that just drives up the, the the opportunity for people to make bad decisions. But uh, um, I don't think we completely understand why this is happening now. But certainly, it it, uh, it appears that the the selfie and, and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and those types of things, the way people are communicating, especially younger people, they want to put pictures on there that maybe show that they're brave or they're adventurous and that kind of thing. So it certainly feels like that's part of the motivation, but it's, it's certainly creating some significant challenges for us. Is, is, it, is there a pushback here, Dan? I mean, you just talked about some of the other initiatives, and, and most of those fall right into your wheelhouse. Of course, as manager of public works, you're talking about things like like bike lanes and rail trails. And, and you know, I, th- I think, you know, for a certain extent, we patted ourselves on the back and said, this is great, we're finally catching up, and we're being a progressive city now. This is wonderful. But I'm getting the sense that there are an awful lot of people out there that are just kind of thumbing their nose at it and saying, no, you know what, we're not buying into this. We're not going to be safe to, we're conscious about this sort of stuff. We're just going to pretend these things don't exist, which is actually putting some of the people that use those facilities in peril. Yeah, there's no question. I think, uh, you know, you and I uh, were raised in a generation where cars were becoming more and more available. And, you know, we love to see the muscle cars when we were young. And, you know, some of us have, have those muscle cars sitting in our garages right now. And, you know, the whole kind of philosophy was to get from one place to another as quick as you could. And certainly younger people now, they're, 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 they're slowing down. Uh, often they don't care if they have a car. They're happy to take public transit. They want to live downtown where maybe our generation wanted to get out, uh, get out of downtown and live in uh, the suburbs. So we're, we're, we're starting to see kind of a transformation here and a real different, um, different desires, I guess, from younger people. And so there is a bit of a clash of generations, I guess you could call it, on, on what people want. And, um, you know, we're trying to we're trying to balance everybody's expectations and their desires here, but it's it's certainly creating some uh, some challenges for us. Well, let's talk about the waterfall situation specifically, I guess, over the next couple of minutes, if we could, Dan, because there are some that are suggesting, well, you know, one of the solutions here is just put more fencing up. You've also got to, I guess, weigh into this whole factor, the waterfalls and, and water flow themselves. You can't put a half a lot of fencing up there because you're going to prohibit the the, the water flow in the stream uh, and and the natural course of of the water that it, it, itself it's it's somewhat problematic. It's it's not a, a, a simple solution to just put more fence up and say there you you're done. We're good now. Yeah, and I think what we're seeing is that fencing and signage doesn't always do the trick. And you know, for any of us, and I count myself in this. Uh, in this uh, school that, you know, you appreciate nature and nature doesn't come with signs and fences and all kinds of uh, features to prohibit people going in there. It kind of ruins the look of it, to be honest. So I guess the challenge for us is to just try to find that, uh, that happy medium or that uh, sweet spot where we're, you know, we're making it obvious to people if they're going to continue that they're going to be in danger, but also balancing that with, uh, you know, trying to maintain the beauty of the natural features that we have around the community. I don't think we'll ever get into a situation where we're going to, struggle with erecting these types of devices right within the, the the flow of the creek itself so i'm not so concerned about that but what it also does is create some challenges for us where when we have to go in and have to do maintenance on these uh on these features uh, you know we we don't want to have a situation where we're blocking our own staff from going in so now you have to build features that can be removed and as soon as you do that it just makes it easier for those who are who are motivated to remove them you know so if you're going to have a swinging gate or something like that 
So there, there's no question that it, you know, it, it may sound like an easy solution to just put up a fence, but there's a lot of thought that has to go in behind it before you do that. One of the other solutions that was talked about here, and we, we've tried to reach out to Councillor Jackson, uh, who, well, that's the, the area, of course, in which Albion Falls is present. That seems to be where most of this activity seems to be happening. But I don't want people to get the impression that there aren't crowds at the, at the other facilities, because there are. But but anyway, they're talking about doing a staircase all the way down to the bottom, uh, and we've seen that in other facilities as well. That's that's got to be rather significant from a cost standpoint. Yeah, I, uh, I hate to speculate, but I suspect that if we were to do some kind of a staircase uh, at that location, you you could be talking a million dollars. So that would be a significant expense. And and when you build a staircase, you build it with handrails, and 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 now you're you're kind of inviting people to come into another situation where. Are they going to hop over the handrails now to do something that they can get tickets so they can take a photograph? Uh, you know, we've we've seen uh, in other areas where we've got stairways. I, I've seen photographs. Uh, I believe it was out at Spencer's uh, Spencer Creek there, where you know you, we had you know, three or four people on every uh, tread all the way up the stairway. Like it's the, the the attraction for people now to get out to see these waterfalls is really it's really surprising. It's a good thing, but we just have to manage it in a way that's uh, that's going to be safe for people and. Uh, you know, of all the challenges that we have uh, with respect to infrastructure and, and, and tight budgets and that kind of thing, I think uh, I don't envy uh, council and having to make a decision like that. I, certainly, we want to encourage people to get out there, but uh, every time you build infrastructure, there's a whole host of issues that go along with that, whether it's uh, the life cycle renewal of it or the, or the unanticipated consequences of how people are going to behave with that infrastructure. So that would certainly be one that we'd have to identify for council. Well, we've seen that because of the unique structure, the geographic structure of the city of Hamilton, of course, as we, well, we call it the mountain, it's an escarpment, but uh, the staircase is up and down. And, you know, we've, we've got a number of them across the base of the escarpment right now, but there are maintenance costs. I think Wentworth is under construction right now, the one I used to use all the time. And, uh, and there are other ones like that, too. I mean, as you say, there's life cycle cost in this. There's repair. There's maintenance on this. The million dollars that you just talked about, the potential million dollars to do a, even a walkway down Albion Falls, that's only the capital cost. That doesn't even include the work that would have to go in to maintain it. Absolutely. And you, you and I have had conversations over the last few months about, you know, the accesses, the, the vehicle accesses to the escarpment and the fact that the escarpment is always moving. It's always eroding. It's always uh you know, it's always changing, and as soon as you build infrastructure on that, now you you have to manage that and maintain it. So uh, your, your point's well made that there's the capital cop cost up front, but then there's the uh, the ongoing maintenance, and certainly with some of the more extreme wet weather that we've seen, some of those uh, issues are hard to identify ahead of time. But when they when they when they have an adverse effect on your infrastructure, you have to respond to them immediately, and it's uh, it's continuing to put pressure on our budgets. There's no question. Well, we saw that. It's interesting you bring that point up. Uh, because, I, as I say, for, I used to use the Wentworth Steps all the time when I lived in that neck of the woods, uh, and they were wonderful. But for those that do use them or did use them back in those days, uh, not too far, just a couple of feet away, you'd see the remnants of the old wooden stairs that were the Wentworth Stairs back in the in the 50s and 60s. And it was a different pitch uh, because the escarping was different. And my, my wife, Rebecca, who grew up in Stony Creek, uh, used to hang around the Devil's Punch Bowl because they lived right there. And, and again, you could climb the punch bowl back in those days without a great deal of difficulty, but now it's almost a, a 90 degree angle. I mean, the, the escarpment is a living, breathing thing and it's changing and the infrastructure has to change around that. Yeah, absolutely. That's what we're, we, we observe about the face of the escarpment in some areas. Uh, the, the slope is becoming more mellow in other areas. It's becoming more steep and it's really, uh, a function of the overburden and the type of vegetation that's growing on it or just the condition of the underlying rock and, 
I think I mentioned this to you last time we spoke about this, the, the, the really tough two winters that we had uh, about three years ago. Um, you know, I think the, the freeze-thaw cycle and the adverse effects of that on the escarpment phase, we're still, we're stealing, we're still seeing the, uh, uh, the, the results of that, and we're going to have to uh, continue to monitor and manage the, uh, the effects of that as we go forward. So going forward, uh, as I segue right in after your last answer there, what do we do going forward? I know that from a political standpoint, uh, there's some talk about a fine system, there's talk about patrols and things of that nature there, and that's somewhat problematic and certainly certainly costly as well. But do you have any short-term measures that you can put in there until a, a more firm policy is developed? Yeah, I mean, from a public works perspective, we're going to continue to try to put in, you know, uh, uh, fencing where we think it's appropriate and add additional signing and, uh, you know, any other measures that become evident to us as far as uh, uh, trying to keep people or at least make sure they're they're they're, uh, they're advised that they're entering into a dangerous location. But we're going to continue to do that. And I, I think the kind of the, the message from us going forward is that we're, you know, we just have to keep evolving with these as we go, and we have to keep an open mind to different strategies that we can use to uh, to try to keep people safe as they get close to these uh, these natural features that we have. Dan McKinnon, the uh, manager of public works for the city of Hamilton. Dan, thanks as always for the time. We greatly appreciate it today. My pleasure. I know we'll talk again soon. So much uh, for that one. Uh, on email, bkelly at 900chml.com. John says, hey, if they make the fire department rescue them and they went down off the trail, they should pay for the cost of the rescue. John, a lot of people think the same way that you did. Thanks so much for the feedback on that. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, we know the Ontario government is seeking input into a proposed $15 an hour minimum wage. Uh, they, of course, they're going to increase it from... Uh, the current uh, stand right now, uh, which is uh, what about eleven bucks, eleven and a half bucks? Uh, it's going to go up to fourteen bucks uh, as of January of twenty eighteen, and then on January of uh, twenty nineteen, it will go up to the fifteen bucks. Yesterday, Hamilton City Council was asked to endorse this idea. Uh, they chose not to. Uh, it said they need more information, uh, not unlike what they did with the, uh, the fair wage policy, the living wage policy, uh, a couple of months ago when they were debating that. Notwithstanding City Council's foot-dragging on this, uh, the uh, province says they're still moving forward on this, but they are seeking input. Well, yesterday you heard from the Ontario Chamber of Commerce here on the Bill Kelly Show, and they talked about some of the concerns that they had about this increase. Uh, if I could thumbnail the uh, the concerns, uh, basically they're saying it's too much too fast, uh, and they're concerned about how this is going to impact businesses and uh, could actually talk to but to go to the point of layoffs and a number of other different things. What about the other side of the story? Well, let me bring Tom Cooper into the conversation, the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, who joins us here on the Bill Keller Show. Hey, Tom, how are you this morning? Good morning, Bill. How are you? Great to have you with us. Uh, doing fine. Thanks very much. Uh, I don't know if you were able to, to watch uh, any of the council discussion on this yesterday. I thought it was uh, very, uh, ins- well, let me put it this way, instructive uh, to get the perspective on some of the people on council. Some of the reticence uh, to move forward in this policy was simply saying, look, we need more information. And, and I guess to a point I can see that. Yeah. Others others seem to have a much stronger philosophical uh, uh, opposition to this sort of thing, too. You've heard this before. How do you respond to those those sorts of, uh, of of statements when you hear things like, "Well, some some people that are making minimum wage right now don't want the increase because they're afraid of what it might do." I have yet to meet one of those people, Bill. Uh, right now in Ontario, there are 1.8 million people who are earning less than fifteen dollars an hour, and many of them are experiencing poverty. They're not able to escape that cycle of working poverty. They're not able to 
be able to purchase basic necessities for their life, cover rent, cover food, uh, utilities, to say nothing of being able to participate. And, and that's one thing we, we often talk about is living wage as a participatory wage so that people can take part in their community, can volunteer, uh, can, can get uh, civically engaged. For people who are earning right now $11.40 uh, as part of the minimum wage, it's simply not enough. There, the minimum wage isn't based on any sort of evidence of what it costs to live in communities across Ontario. And so, yes, we're happy the government's moving up to, to $15. Uh, we're going to continue to talk to local businesses about the importance of going beyond that, too, and, and implementing living wage within their own workplaces. It's interesting to hear the discussion and the debate, and, and I've talked to small businesses and, and listened to some of their concerns about this. And yesterday, as we mentioned, we had Richard Corsell from the Ontario Chamber of Commerce on talking about uh, their policy issue on this, and, and they've been pretty consistent as this as well. Yep. But but I'm always interested, and, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I guess I'm playing devil's advocate here, uh, because some businesses will say if you raise that, then you're really having a, a negative effect on our bottom line. And and my my first argument like that, and forgive me for you know, I just like to poke the bear sometimes, is to say, so you're telling me the only way you can exist as a business is if you pay uh, subsistence wages to your employees, and you don't really care about their well being and whether or not they're able to pay their own bills. As as long as that situation is maintained, then you're okay. Uh, and it just seems to me to be a, a, well to suggest an unfair system. I guess is my, a, a massive understatement. It is an unfair system, and I think for the most part where living wages and increased minimum wages have been implemented, small business owners have actually seen improvements in their bottom line. We've seen it in countless examples across the United States, and the modern living wage movement has been going since the early 1990s. We've seen more recently many cities in the U.S. adopting a $15 minimum wage. And, and let's keep in mind the exchange rate here, Bill, as well. Uh, so the a Canadian $15 is closer to $19 in the United States right now. And that's what many cities are setting as, as their floor, their minimum wage floor. And they're finding there have been product productivity improvements. There's certainly less absenteeism, less sick time. There's less turnover. We've seen many businesses that are doing very well, thank you very much, uh, after implementing a living wage. The best example that came, you know, not from, uh, not from more leftist think tanks, but from, uh, from the Harvard School Business Review was uh, an example that uh, compared Costco in the United States, which does pay a living wage, to Walmart. And uh, Costco was able to retain their employees, keep them happy, uh, the employees felt valued, and as a result, their productivity soared and their profits soared as well. And there's many examples in the U.S. Uh, where this is happening, and uh, many states are, are taking that lead as well in implementing $15 uh, minimum wages across the board. But the, the, uh, the concern always is, well, it's it's going to cost us more. And we, we're we so precarious right now in, in our bottom line and the profit margins because of some of the other pressures that any change like this is is going to have an adverse effect on this, and we may have to start laying people off. And, and and I've heard this before. I've heard this every time we've talked about minimum wage. I heard this last time the minimum wage was increased. Uh, it, it was a lot less than fifteen bucks at that time. And, and I'm not unsympathetic to businesses. I mean, I, I know a lot of people that, that run small businesses and their own businesses, and and I know how problematic it can be these days. 
But at the same time, uh, is you know, yeah, well, let's talk about things like social responsibility and, and like you say, uh, looking after employees. And, and I, that seems to be something that gets lost in this discussion. Exactly. And, and that's what really this initiative is about. It's, it's about lifting employees up. Look, it's the same in the States as it is in Canada. We have this, this fundamental belief that if you work hard, you put in your hours, your 37 and a half or 40 hours a week, uh, you should be able to uh, move yourself and your family out of poverty by working. Uh, unfortunately, over the last generation or so, that has not been happening for far too many workers, and more and more workers are falling further and further behind. Uh, I, th- I think we really, as a society, need to take a close look at, at what we're doing, how we're paying uh, employees to, to do work. And right now, employees aren't feeling valued because they're not earning what they deserve to earn in order to, to not not only meet their basic needs, but also participate in their community. I mean, 11 bucks and 40 cents an hour. I mean, I, I defy anybody to try to to pay rent, pay groceries, uh, whatever else they need to pay, you know, depending on their own circumstances. It's, it's ridiculous to think that in 2017, somebody could actually subsist on that kind of money. Oh, absolutely. And it, it's an argument that has been made certainly by uh, by people uh, who've been advocating for increased minimum wages. And I really have to uh, uh, take my hat off to the Fight for 15 folks who've been, who've been you know, working on this campaign, uh, blood, sweat, and tears for the last uh, several years and, and pushing this issue forward. Um, and governments have followed. I think governments uh, are now starting to see the value of uh, improving uh, wages so that they can see an improvement in community economic development as well. We know when workers are earning a little bit more, that's money that's spent in the community on, on local goods and services. It's also a little bit of extra tax money going to, to governments as well, because when you're earning that extra revenue, it, it's going into the tax coffers. Uh, so it's helping society as a whole. And it's something that um, just last week, more than 60 economists uh, came forward in the Globe and Mail and said, uh, $15 minimum wage is the right thing to do. Um, it's not. Uh, it's not the economic boogeyman that uh, that some small business organizations would claim it is. And you know, I again, I I, I really have to thank our local living wage employers who have taken uh, taken leadership in showing that uh, this can be done. And we have some great examples here in Hamilton. We of course know about Cake and Loaf and. Dominion Pattern Works and Mustard Seed Co-op, and there's so many others, including the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, who a couple of years ago said, yes, $15 is the right thing to do. They signed on to Hamilton's living wage rate of $14.95 at that time because they felt uh, that paying a living wage to their direct employees at the Chamber of Commerce uh, would help uh, tell the story of a high-wage economy in Hamilton and encourage more businesses to locate here. So I, th- I think the narrative is really changing, and I, I think we're starting to see the economic spin-offs of, of improving wages. Here's one of the arguments that uh, the Chamber is presenting, and, and the Hamilton Chamber and the Ontario Chamber uh, and some other business uh, Interests, and again, I think we have to listen to what they have to say here because those are ultimately the small businesses that employ people in this province right now, and 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 their concerns have to be, I think, part of this discussion. But they say to plan effectively and protect jobs, employers need predictability and time to adjust the costs and other inputs where we can. Uh, there's no way to absorb and adjust to a 32 percent hit in less than 18 months. 
and, and I'm not so sure about that, that the math there as to whether or not they can absorb that. Uh, but, I mean, there is a, a path here. It's yeah. not as if it's going from 1140 to $15. There's, it is going to be done in, in, in uh, segments like this. Uh, as we mentioned, 14% next year and then the, the final 1% the year after that right now. That's right. But at the same time, you know, we I understand about predictability and, and in, in doing business like this. But I, I have to, again, go back to the idea of, okay, what about your employees and, and the productivity that they're going right now? Is this not big a part of a bigger problem right now, Tom, that's happening? And it's got really nothing to do with minimum wage. It's got a fact to do right now that a lot of people and businesses got hit pretty hard by the recession in 2009. Uh, and, and, and are still recovering from that in many situations. But there's a different employment climate right now where a lot of people that are highly skilled are working for a lot less money, oftentimes for, for no benefits included now, as, as used to be the norm some years ago right now. And, and you've got people with four, five, six years experience that are working for minimum wage and in some cases working a second job just to try to make ends meet. Exactly. And in the, I, I think the stereotype of a minimum wage worker has changed. It, it used to be uh, we would see a minimum wage worker and assume it was a uh, it was a teenager working an after school job, maybe at a fast food restaurant. That's simply no longer the case. It's many people in their 30s and their 40s and their 50s who are who are working those jobs, as you indicated, Bill. And we know uh, it, it's becoming harder and harder to get off that treadmill of, of low wage work. And that's why we do need government intervention sometimes, because while we do have great living wage employers right right across the province, and there's 200 of them now, um, there's other organizations, other businesses that simply uh, won't uh, improve wages unless they're compelled to do it. And uh, that's what's good about Bill 148. Small businesses talk about the importance of predictability in, in, in the wages they have to pay, but Employees also need predictability, and oftentimes, particularly in the retail sector and in the, in the service sector, uh, we have seen a growing trend of uh, organizations, employers that simply don't provide adequate uh, scheduling for for their own employees. They get uh, they get you know sometimes three or four hours notice that they have to come in for a shift. Sometimes those shifts are only a couple of hours long. And it makes it impossible for employees to plan from week to week, whether it's uh, trying to figure out their daycare schedules for their kids or if they're trying to juggle two or three or four part-time jobs, how they're going to make that work. Um, So, yes, we do need predictability, but I I think it's time to err a little bit more on the side of the employees who have, quite frankly, uh, been forgotten over the last 10 or 15 years um, in, in the rush uh, to find business efficiencies, um, but we found that you know that simply isn't working. Well, and one of the arguments, of course, that I've heard is that well, that means that prices are probably going to go up on some of these products. Well, I got news for you: the prices are going up anyway. Uh, they've got up for the longest time. We were just reminiscing. Uh, we got into a Tim Hortons discussion the other day with some friends and. You know, talking about the fact that the company was born here in Hamilton, and the first one was, of course, down on Ottawa Street. The second one was on Concession Street. The third one was on Bridget. On and on it goes. And I said, back in those days, I used to be able to go in for 25 cents. I could get a cup of coffee and a donut. Uh, 25 cents won't even get you in the door now. I mean, you can't get anything for that. Prices have gone up. I would rather, I don't mind paying an extra 13 or 14 or 20 cents for a cup of coffee. I, as long as I knew that extra money was going into the pocket of the person who was serving me. 
who's exactly. working there at 4 o'clock in the morning for minimum wage. I don't mind that they're going to get a little more money. What pees me off more than anything else is when those prices have gone up, and they do go up on a regular basis anyway, and it goes into the pockets of some corporation in Venezuela that owns the company right now. Or they want to put a new TV in there that's going to advertise their sandwiches. and That, that, that galls me. Uh, while the person who's doing that, I mean, when you look at the amenities they're putting into some of these facilities right now, and the, the person who's still serving you is still making a minimum wage, that's inequity. That's the problem, and that's something that needs to be addressed. Uh, I'll pay it. I'll pay it right now. And we talked about that when you had some of the folks that are doing living wage uh, programs here in the city right now. Uh, you know, I don't care as long as those people all of a sudden have got an extra couple of bucks in their pocket and maybe can pay the rent uh, instead of having to work that second job. That's that's the sort of attitude we seem to take here. But everybody seems to be adopting right now like, well, it's not my problem. It's somebody else's problem. It's all our problem. It is all our problem. And we do have to take the long view on it as well. And, and you're absolutely right. Is there some value in me paying five cents more for that extra large coffee? If I know the person on the other end of the counter is going to be able to go home and, and purchase medication for a sick child uh, that they otherwise wouldn't be able to do, I, I, I'd say that's a good value, um, you know, not just from a humanitarian perspective, but certainly as a taxpayer as well, because I know when uh, we're not uh, providing those basic benefits, whether it's uh, pharmacare uh, assistance or, or other basic needs, uh, often there is a cost to society down the, down the long run. And we know people who are experiencing poverty, and I include the working poor amongst uh, that number, are, are far more likely to be sick, uh, suffer from chronic disease and other ailments. Um, if, if we're not doing what we need to do as a society uh, to prevent, uh, you know, those, uh, those illnesses from, from getting worse. So, is there is there some value in paying somebody a little bit more money as part of their job so that they can uh, you know purchase that medication get get um, get the help they need uh, so they don't end up losing more time off work and, and then maybe ending up in the hospital as well and we know the uh, the cost to healthcare uh, our system is currently bearing. Well, here's the problem, and and I'm going to point the finger at government here. I I, I just I get upset when I see this happen. Because essentially right now, because governments have been cutting back, and we've talked about, you brought the healthcare analogy, and so let's go there. i only got about a minute left here. But, you know, back in the day when, when, when our, our Medicare system started in this country, it was 50-50, the federal government and the provinces. Federal government pays about, I think it's 14 or 15% on that right now. And the rest of it basically is kind of up to us. The provinces don't have a whole lot more money now because of the uh, the payments that have been reduced by the federal government. So as a result, they're basically saying to somebody who's making a, a minimum wage right now, we're not going to pay for your dental plan. You don't have one. You're not going to get a pharmacare program because we just can't afford it or don't want to pay the money for that. Uh, so you guys are on your own. I know If your child gets sick and you need a prescription for antibiotics, too bad, so sad. But, and we're, we're making it more difficult for people to live these days. And, and then somebody comes along and says, we need to raise the minimum wage. And this goes back to the point that I brought up with you four months ago when the province first started talking about this, Tom, is the province still has to step up here and say, not only are we doing this, but we're going to provide these services as well to make it easier. We're going to take some of the pressure off of small businesses to have to pay equity into those programs, into things like insurance and, 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 and CPP. Uh, enough is enough. It's about time that the province and the federal government stepped up here and said, we've got some responsibility for the social welfare of people right now, too, because they've abdicated that responsibility for the last 30 years. 
Amen, Bill. <laughs> I, I don't think I could say that. End of rant. End of rant. And on that and on that note, we got to finish it off. Tom, uh, thanks so much as always. You see, you got me going now. So, I know. But I know. Uh, all right, I'm going to cool off for just a second. We'll talk again soon, Tom. Thanks Thank for you, this. Bill. Tom Cooper, of course, the uh, chair of the uh, Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.